Welcome to the Renewal Church Podcast. We exist so that people will be made new in Jesus, grow in Jesus, and be released into the world for Jesus. We pray that God will bless you today with the truth of His Word. All right, go to Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Um, I'm very excited about this text today. Um, It was a challenge for me in my study, challenged me personally a lot. Um, So we got a lot to dig into today. So Colossians 2, starting in verse 16, we're going to go all the way to verse 23. Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, And questions of food and drink are with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grow with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom and promoting self-religion and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So I am a product of the 90s. Do we have anybody else that's a product of the 90s in here? Where are my millennials at? Thank you. Okay. And in the 90s, there was a popular kids show called Captain Planet. Anyone ever watch that show? Yeah, you've heard of it. Maybe your kids watched it, right? Uh, now, some of the details of that show to me are a little blurry as I thought about it this week. Uh, it's been 25 years since I saw that show. But um, the basic idea of the show is that there is a guy named Captain Planet. He's everything that you think a superhero can be. He has superhuman strength. He can fly. He can do all the hero stuff. And Captain's Planet main goal is to protect the Earth. Part of the way that he does that is he has chosen to give five rings to five kids, Okay. So five magic rings. And these rings would give you the ability to to control some part of nature. These kids were called the Planeteers, okay? The show always had the same cadence. They would have some huge problem, and 90% of the show was the kids with rings trying to solve the problem and failing. And then eventually, with their powers combined, they would call on Captain Planet. And Captain Planet would come, and he would save the day. And I remember sitting there watching this show when I was a kid, and one of the kids on the TV was like, oh man, I can't do it. So I just remember saying back to the TV, as if I was talking to the planeteer, just call Captain Planet. And as I got older, that show would just infuriate me. I remember my niece started watching it and I was like, this is the dumbest show that has ever existed, right? Because most of the show is just these kids realizing that they can't solve the problem, that no matter what they do, they can't do it. And I'm like, this isn't the kids with a ring show. The show is called Captain Planet. Just call him. This show would be over in five minutes if you just called Captain Planet. Every time, every week, you get in trouble, you try to fix it, and then you just end up 
calling Captain Planet. Well, maybe if we do this, we can fix it. No, you can't fix it. I feel like I've been holding that in for 25 years, y'all. <laughs> oh, man. So why do I tell you? Why, was I, why did I think about that uh, this week? We know in our bones that something's off. We know as hum- in humanity, we feel the disconnection between us and God, between each other. And how much of our lives is spent with us trying to fix something that only God can fix? Every week, we feel it, right? The same thing. I'm not okay with God. I'm, we're not okay with each other. I, I don't feel okay with myself. And how many times do we just try to fix it over and over and over again when it's clear? He's the only one that can fix it. So I just kept thinking of those kids. They're just, they're just trying to fix every problem, and then eventually, it's, to the very end, they realize, I can't do it. If we would just understand as the people of God, we can't fix the problem. Right? We know something is off, and we try to fix the problems, and then we put in all these rules, right? All these expectations. We put in all these rules that if I just do this, then I'll be okay. If I just think like this, if I just have this kind of mentality, if I just put these parameters in, then I'll be okay. And today, Paul is going to essentially tell this church, you don't have the problem, or you don't have the solution to the problem. You don't have the capabilities to fix it. You can't. Because the reality is, in him, he's already done it for you. He's already done it. What you're trying to do has already been done in Christ. That's where we're going today. So just to remind you where we are in the book of Colossians, we're officially over uh, halfway through, by the way. We went very slow through chapters one and two. We're going to pick it up next week, starting in chapter three. But the Apostle Paul had not met the people that he is writing to in Colossae. Uh, At the time of this letter, Paul is writing from Rome while he is in prison. He learned about this church through a guy named Epaphras, if you remember that. Epaphras is from Colossae, and the prominent thought is that Epaphras got connected to Paul while Paul was teaching the gospel in Ephesus, which was very close to the city of Colossae. And after Epaphras was, uh, Epaphras was saved, he took the gospel, it's believed, to his hometown of Colossae. Eventually, he planted a church there, and after a time, we don't know how long, after a time, Epaphras uh, goes back to Paul and gives him a report about this church. He tells them what's happening in the church. And really, there's two things that he tells Paul. One is positive and one is negative. The positive is that it seems like the believers in this book, in this church, it seems like they have genuine faith, that they have a deep desire to follow Christ. And God is doing amazing work through them. But on the other hand, it seems that there is some sort of false teaching beginning to rise within the church. We don't get the sense that these believers had embraced this false teaching quite yet, but it would seem serious enough for one, uh, Epaphras to mention it to Paul, and for two, for Paul to address it in this letter. And so much of this letter is Paul warning these believers against this false teaching, and then he's reminding them of the gospel that they first heard. We don't know exactly what the false teaching is, but as far as we can tell, it had some elements of Gnosticism in it which really began in the second century, but you see some elements of it 
um, here that, that there were people that were saying, hey, we have this knowledge, this secret knowledge, and if you want to really know God, then you have to come to us, and then um, you can have a different kind of spiritual experience. That's why you see Paul use the word fullness or the word filled over and over, reminding them that in Christ is the fullness of all things. It's the fullness of knowledge. It would also seem that there's some sort of syncretism being pushed here. Remember, syncretism is the practice of combining different religions, practices, or schools of thought, right? Kind of a melting pot of ideas. Um, And so it would seem, and we'll see this today, that they took some elements from Judaism, some elements maybe of the teachings of Jesus, and perhaps some specific type of mysticism, and they're teaching this idea to the believers in Colossae, that if you want to be a Christian, then it looks like this, okay? Um, So the first two chapters, Paul spends so much time exalting Christ. He wants to bring clarity to who Christ is, and he's also denouncing this false teaching that is happening. Next week, Paul is going to move into some practical, okay? Because of who Christ is, this is how we operate in the world. But today, there is one specific idea that Paul is going to go after, and that is the danger of what we know as legalism. Legalism. Anybody ever heard of legalism? Right. Many of us have. Um, He starts off, verse 16, by saying, therefore. Okay? Therefore. Anytime you see that word in Scripture, therefore, you have to ask what? What is it there for? Right? And so, remember what we said last week. So, before we jump into the idea of legalism, let's remember. Paul says that the fullness of God dwelled bodily, that God put on flesh and he died on the cross. And when he died, he nailed our record of debt to the cross with him. And we, through faith, have been moved from dead to alive. He was raised from the grave. We are raised from the grave. And so Paul lays out the gospel for them. And then he says, therefore, because of all this, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the prominent belief is that there were people in Colossae who were teaching that in order to be a true Christian, that you, yes, had to love Jesus, but you also had to do all of this other stuff. It was Jesus plus something else. And it would seem that there are people in Colossae who are taking elements from the Old Testament and claiming that the restrictions that God put on the Jewish people were still a requirement post the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the idea here is that these teachers in Colossae were taking elements from Judaism, from the Old Testament law, and saying, hey, if you are for real, then you're going to eat this. If you're for real, you're not going to eat that. If you're for real, if you're a true believer, then you'll celebrate this festival. If you're true and you're real and you're legit, then you will do or you will not do this. At its core, it's a gospel of performance. I have to perform this way in order to be able to experience God. And remember, this uh, connects back to what Paul called plausible arguments. On the outside, it makes sense. It's believable. And so Paul tells them, hey, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one pass judgment on you. It speaks to the reality, and this is true for all of us, that we are all tempted to play the role of God in each other's lives, okay? There is a kind of judgment 
that is unhelpful for the church, and it is actually extremely dangerous. It's the kind of judgment where we claim that God has said something regarding my own life or someone else's life that God has never actually said, okay? This, that idea of legalism, um, if, you, if you grew up in the church, you probably heard this word before, and, and I know that some of you have not, but legalism is a word that is thrown around casually in a lot of churches, right? Um, and if you ask five different people, hey, what is legal, legalism? You might get five different answers. Definitions um, are not concrete, right? And so here's, a, here's the question we have to a- ask first. What is legalism? Well, I came across an article written by a guy named Dan Doriani. He's a professor at Covenant uh, Seminary, and I found this article pretty helpful. He says there are four different types of legalists. First, there are those who are attempting to earn God's favor, right? So I have to earn my salvation. They view salvation as something that I can gain. The rich young ruler would have fit in this category. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And in order to be saved, I have to meet a certain standard of performance. So that's the first one. Second, there are those who do good deeds in order to try to, try to keep their salvation, right? That at their core, uh, they are fear, fearful that they are going to lose their salvation. Perhaps you think, yes, I get in by grace alone, but in order to keep grace, I have to perform. I have to do these certain things. There, third, there are those who love the law of God so much that they add new ones, right? And we all know those people. Maybe you are that person, um, but you just love the law, right? You love rules. You love following rules. So we take what God says and we add to it our own assumptions. And fourth, this one's interesting. This is probably where I fall. Uh, there is a type of legalist that emphasizes holiness and obedience to God to such a strong degree that we forget that God is a God of compassion, mercy, and love. Perhaps you do good things for God. You know a lot about God. You read your Bible. You pray. But at the end of the day, you're kind of a jerk to the people around you. You lack love. My assumption is that every single person in here can identify with one or two um, of these categories. I know that I do. And the problem with legalism is that it masquerades as righteousness. The problem with legalism is that it masquerades as righteousness. It gives off the perception that you are pursuing the glory of God when reality, if you're honest, the center of your worship, the center of your life, your Lord is you. You have your own standards and expectations. And when we force legalism on somebody else, what happens is we actually are teaching, in a way, a false teaching. We're false teachers. When you require something of someone else that God has not said in his word, then you're teaching something that is false. But here's the deal. There is a tendency, there is an allure for all of us to be legalists. It's tempting for all of us. Like our flesh is drawn to it. We want to be legalists. It's so appealing because we love the do's and don'ts of life, don't we? We love the do's and don'ts of life. We, we want concrete information, right? Uh, we, we want these do's and don'ts. We want to have a clear understanding of what is expected of me and a clear understanding of what is expected of others. We want to know if we have done the things required to receive blessing, favor, and love from God. We want tangible actionable, performable goals, right? We want to know, man, if, if, 
if we have done the things that God has required of us, and we want to make sure that, you're, that others are doing what God has required of them, it pulls on this desire to determine, I need to know <clears throat> where I stand with God, where I stand in comparison with someone else, where I can say, man, God, I'm, I'm not as bad as them. Or, God, can't you see how much I've done for you? I've kept all your rules. I've done more for you than they have. And so let's give a couple examples so we can wrap our minds around this. Okay, if I asked you, how long per day should a Christian pray? What would you say? Would you say, you don't have to say it out loud. Rhetorical questions. Would you say five minutes a day? 15 minutes a day? An hour a day? Stop me when you're ready. Two hours a day? Eight out, I mean, it just goes on and on, right? So the Bible tells us that we should pray, but at no point does the Bible give us an exact amount of time that we should pray. It says that we should pray continuously, but what does that mean, right? If I pray for 15 minutes a day, but you pray for two hours a day, does that mean that you know God better than I do? Or how much of the Bible should I read a day? How long should I spend reading the Bible? I mean, should I read a chapter a day? Should I read a book a day? Come on. I mean, what if I read the Bible in a year and you don't? Does that mean I'm a better Christian than you? Right? And so these, these, like, these questions, okay, I remember uh, when I started going to youth group, I was saved in high school. I started going to church, and all these kids were talking about their quiet time, their quiet time. I was like, what in the world is a quiet time? What do you, you, just, you just wake up and sit in silence? Like, what in the world is that? If you don't know what a quiet time is, it takes from the scripture that talks about Jesus going off by himself in the quiet of the morning and, re, and, and spending time with God. That's what a quiet time is. But I had no idea what that was. And I remember this one kid was like, yeah, I think that your quiet time should be before 8 a.m. and at least an hour long. And I was like, bro, I can't even get to school by 8 o'clock in the morning. You want me to wake up at 6 a.m. and read my Bible for an hour are you kidding me? And my first thought was, well, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. Now, I had one of the leaders kind of walk with me through that and show me the gospel of grace. I ended up settling on 4 p.m. in my garage after school. And the Bible talks about how we should be rooted in God's word. We should be established in him. But does it give an exact amount of time that we're supposed to read his word? See, a legalist is always wondering, did I do enough? Did I read enough? Did I pray enough? Did I, did I have the right amount of passion when I prayed? Now, is it wrong to say that I'm going to pray a certain amount of time and I'm going to read a certain amount of time? Absolutely not. But we have to be mindful of the heart's motivation. Do I do the things I do because of the grace of Jesus? Or do I do the things I do so that I can get the grace of Jesus? See, we have to be careful when we put on ourselves and others expectations and regulations that God has not put on us. The example of legalism that we have here in Colossians, it was centered on this religious duty, right? That's connected in some way to Judaism. That's part of it here. Um, so let me read it again. He says, let no one pass judgment on you. And he says, in questions of food and drink are with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, Many things mentioned in verse 16 would have had some kind of connection to the Old Testament. It would appear that there is some sort of mixing from the Old Testament, 
from Old Testament law and Judaism. And then uh, there's some kind of mixing with mysticism here. So when you think about the syncretism, those are the things that are being mixed. Because he says in verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. This would have us believe that there is some kind of spiritual mysticism happening here. Something, some kind of mysticism that's being pushed. And it speaks to, by the way, a broader understanding of legalism that I don't think we talk about a lot. Most of the time we talk about legalism, we talk about morality, these requirements, these rules, these things that we do. Like, like legalism can either drive the Christian to be focused on their performance, or there is a type of legalism that drives the Christian to be centered on their experiences. Does that make sense? On their experiences. That in order to be a true follower of Christ, you have to have this kind of experience with God. When we say, this is how my relationship with God is, and that is how your relationship with God has to be. You have to have this kind of experience. But for example, there are churches that will say, um, if you speak in tongues, then you're not a true follower. And then there are churches that will say, well, if you don't speak in tongues, then you're not a true follower. That's a dangerous game, right? That the evident of evidence of our faith is not whether or not you have had this specific type of experience with God, that we have to be careful that the assurance of our faith is not found on an emotional experience or a standard of performance that God does not have for us. Does that make sense? And so I think Paul's going to address both of those ideas because they're kind of mixed here. And so for performance, he says, hey, let no one pass judgment on you. And for experience, he says, hey, let no one disqualify you. And so let's look at performance first, okay? One of the major conflicts in the New Testament was, uh, is that we see is, is how do the Old Testament covenant, covenants kind of flow into the covenant, uh, the new covenant that Jesus has brought. If you read Galatians, the main conflict facing that church is whether or not the laws that God placed on the Jewish people are required for the Jew- Gentiles. And so in the Old Testament, God had placed laws, rules, around things like food, around things like diet, right? You can read those laws in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. There were some things that you were allowed to eat, and there were some things that you were not allowed to eat. And one of the purposes of the Old Testament was to establish the Jewish people as God's chosen people, that the world would know that God is not like these other gods. He is so much better he is supreme, he is holy, he is different, he is set apart. And so therefore, the laws that God placed intended to display who God is to the world through the people of God, that the people of God are different, that they are holy, that they are set apart. And so the question is, since God said it in the Old Testament, are the believers in Colossae still under that law? Paul would say no. He says in verse 17, These are a shadow. This is an important verse. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He says these things, the drink, food, festivals, they are a shadow. So it would be weird, right, if you saw me at a park and you walked up to me and you were walking this way and you walked around me and then you started talking to my shadow. Hey, Colton, how's it going? That would be weird, right? The shadow can't talk back to you. I'm the substance. So it's weird when you try to talk to my shadow. Another way to think about it, 
Um, you ever been sitting somewhere on a bench or something, and then in the corner of your eye, you see a shadow, and it kind of startles you, kind of surprises you, right? That shadow tells you something. It tells you that someone is close to you, that someone is coming near you. You saw the shadow, but you didn't see the substance. The shadow points to something that is real, but it has no substance. You can't grab onto it. You can't talk to it. But you know that something physical is there because it casts a shadow. But the shadow points to something that is real, but it has no substance. Paul is saying that all these rules, these regulations, they are a shadow. They point to something else. And God gave us these shadows, but they are just that, shadows. I would say shadow of what? Okay. Uh, twice in Hebrews, we see similar language from Paul. In Hebrews 8, um, he says that the Old Testament priesthood was a shadow. Okay? That there, God had placed priests, mediators, between man and God, and that these mediators were a shadow of a substance to come. Hebrews 10.1 talks about the law and how the law is a shadow, and specifically how the Old Testament sacrificial system served as a shadow. I'll read that one for you. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So Scripture says that the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was a shadow, that the sacrifices pointed to something, God told his people, if you want forgiveness of your sin, if you want fellowship with me, then something pure must die. Ever heard the phrase, the blood of the lamb covers my sin? Ever heard that phrase? The idea there is that when God looks down at his law, he doesn't see how I have been unable to keep his law. But when the blood of the lamb covers the law, what does he see? He sees holiness, purity, righteousness. He doesn't see my sin. He sees the blood of the innocent covering my sin. And that sacrificial system was a shadow of what? Christ. It pointed to the final sacrifice of Jesus that he would die once to cover our sin for eternity. That Jesus is the substance. The shadow of the law pointed to the substance of Jesus. And since we now have the substance, Paul is saying that the shadow is no more. Like if you're sitting on a bench and you see a shadow, it tells you that someone's coming, right? But once that person shows up, do you start talking to their shadow? Hey, how's it going? That would be weird and foolish. You talk to the physical person. That Christ, the substance, did what the shadow pointed to. In the law was a promise. You can have fellowship with me. You can find forgiveness in me. You can be free from the burdens of sins. The substance was the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus says, in me, you have forgiveness. In me, you have life. In me, you have joy. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Don't run to the shadows. How many times do we run to the shadows? Trying to find only what Christ can give. I wanna be a better person. I wanna be a better husband. I wanna be a better mom, dad, I want to be a better student. I want to do this. I want to do this. And we run to shadows thinking that we can get only what Christ can do. We make rules to comfort ourselves, but doing good things is never going to bring you true freedom. Being a better this 
You can't white knuckle yourself to holiness. You can't do this and earn anything from God. God has to move us from thinking about I need to do to Christ has already done. That we run to Christ who changes us from the inside out, that he's the one who makes us pure. He's the one that makes us holy. No self-help book, nothing that you could ever do is going to make God accept you more. You are accepted because of Jesus, because he died and he rose from the grave and he puts his spirit in you and he causes you to walk in his statues. So let's make sure we get the order correct. Grace is not a result of the things that we do for God. The things that we do for God is a result of grace because it's unbelievable. Grace is unbelievable. Like we talked about last week, you were dead. You were made alive. Your sins were nailed to the cross and you have been reconciled. And there is no better news than that. He's already done it. Therefore, we do. And what these teachers are saying is, yeah, he did it. But if you're a true believer, you won't eat that. God, how, how wretched is that? If you're true, if you're real, then you'll have this experience. He reconciled us. He made us alive. He nailed our sins to the cross. And so if I could plead with us as a church, man, if we ever run to the shadows, we will lose who we are. Because everything we are is found and defined by the substance, by Christ. And so then uh, the other piece of this, so that's really performance, but the other piece of this that Paul addresses is in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. And let me tell you, this verse, um, how do you guys say it? It's cooking, right? God's cooking with this verse. I went to their Bible study, they had a little Bible study on Fridays, and they kept saying this phrase, oh man, it's, it's cooking, you're cooking. I'm like, I can't handle your language. It means good, basically. <laughs> and so I told them I would find a way to, to put, that, put this in here. But this verse, God's cooking, is that right? God's cooking in this verse. Okay. Um, that word disqualify, it means to call you out. So let no one call you out. It brings about the idea of exclusion. Don't let anyone exclude you. Exclude you. That word asceticism, it's a weird one. Okay. If you look it up in the dictionary, it literally means to have severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence. So for spiritual reasons, I will not do or I will do certain things. So it can be used to describe good things like fasting, um, isolation for a period of time to spend time with God. I mean, just things that uh, are intentional, there could be extreme, but they have good intentions. But what's interesting is the way that this verse is used. In Greek, it's the word humility, which we're like, oh, humility, that's a good word. Right? But it's different than how we typically talk about humility. Like the Bible says that we should all have humility with God and with each other. But this isn't speaking about the characteristic of humility. And we know that because Paul connects it with the practice of worship of angels. Now, by the way, quick side note about that verse. Um, it's debated on whether or not Paul is saying that you are worshiping angels or you are joining in with the worship of angels. So we don't know which one it is. It's, it's highly uh, debated. But then in verse 23, he says this, self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. He groups those together. It communicates this idea. So here's that word asceticism. Asceticism. It communicates the idea that I discipline my body to be in a humble position 
to be in uncomfortable positions self for purpose of self-discipline so that I don't indulge, right? And it has, and by doing this, I have some sort of spiritual goal. I'm trying to kickstart something. I'm trying to position myself to have some kind of experience. It's, it's similar, but it's different to why we kneel, right? Like we would say kneeling, it's an, that's an interpretation of humility, that we're coming to God and we're being humble. This is something different. This is a different kind of humility. Um, that we are physically doing something with our body to kickstart an experience that puts us on a different spiritual plane, if that makes sense, either worshiping the angels or worshiping with the angels. But this is a physical act of the body. And so really what's happening here is not the surrendering of oneself to God in a biblical characteristic of humility, but they are putting their bodies in uncomfortable positions to kickstart a spiritual experience. Okay, because he goes on and he denounces visions being puffed up by a sensuous mind that I am putting my body in positions that activate my senses, if that makes sense. They give me these feelings that I feel close to God. They give me this feeling of this higher spiritual plane. And so we're led to believe that these false teachers are not only telling the believers that they have to keep certain rules and regulations, but also that they have, have to have a certain type of experience through the discipline and some kind of contorting of your body in a certain way that will give you access to a spiritual experience. I physically discipline my body in this way. I can be closer to God. And then I can come to you and I can say, hey, if you're real, you'll have this kind of experience with God. If you're real, if you're true, then it's going to look like this. People try to sell this idea all the time still today. There's something that you can do that you can do to kickstart a spiritual experience with God, right? If you truly want to know God, then you're going to do this like I do it. And most of the time it's partnered with, but only I can tell you how to do it. I have the secret, right? Now, let's be clear about something. Is it wrong to have a supernatural spiritual experience with God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And Paul wouldn't say that. Remember who Paul is. Paul was walking down a road and Jesus appeared right in front of him. I mean, come on, right? I mean, there are spiritual experiences, supernatural experiences all throughout the Bible. Can God heal someone who is sick? You bet he can. He does it all the time and you better be praying for that. Um, Can you have a powerful time of worship where you are intimately connected with God, that it is an experience that is like no other that you can't find in the world? Absolutely, but there is a difference between God moving in our lives on his terms and us chasing after an experience for the sake of the experience. Pursuing the experience because we're trying to get something. The problem with the pursuit of an experience is that it tends to lead us away from the pursuit of a person. The more you seek the experience, the less you will seek the one who saved you. Right? It distorts him. It changes who he is and his, how he is Lord over your life, and it changes grace. You're trying to earn something rather than receive it. I worked with young adults from 2009 to 2019, and many of them, they would get captivated by some experience that they had early on in their faith, that they had this amazing, real, honest experience with Jesus. And now when they got to college, they, were, they would spend their time trying to recapture that experience. 
They weren't seeking the person, they were seeking that experience because that experience was good and it was right and it made them feel good. But then they, they completely forgot about the one who called them into that experience, the one who saves them. You do not determine when you have an experience with God. God determines how you experience in him, how you experience him. I mean, this might be a stretch too, but why are so many people drawn to churches that have perfectly programmed lights and fog machines? It creates an experience. Paul says they become puffed up without reason, sensuous minds that he's saying that, that is an experience that is just a, a, obsessed with how, you, how your senses are activated. It makes you feel physically good, but it does nothing for sanctification. Paul says the problem with this is that we do not hold fast to the head. Verse 19, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now, who is the head? Christ is the head. He told us that earlier when he said Christ is the head of the church. So he says, hold fast to the head. And if you hold fast to Christ, then he will nourish the whole body. Hold fast to Christ and he will give you growth that comes from God, not something that you're trying to create or you're trying to earn, but it's growth that comes from God. You aren't going to grow through performance or seeking some sort of experience. Those are empty deceits. They can't deliver on what they promise. Hold fast to Christ. He will nourish you. He will grow them, grow you. And then he reminds them in verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Remember, he told them in verse 8 that they not, should not be taken captive by elemental spirits of the world, that there is a spiritual enemy that is fueling this false teaching, but they should not walk according to the desires of the enemy, which lead you away from Christ, but rather they should walk in Christ and be rooted in Christ. So follow me here. Here he says, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, that's his way of saying when Christ died, the power of the enemy that he held over you, specifically that original sin, that threat of death, that that threat of death is gone because that enemy has been defeated. The elemental spirit uh, powers of the world, they have no influence or power over you. So he's saying, you are, they are dead. You have victory in Christ. And so then he says, in the same way, these regulations have no power over you. How do you know that? You do, not found, you do not find life. You are not alive because of those rules and regulations. How are you alive? Because Christ has made you alive. This is how do you live, submit to these regulations? You're alive because of Christ. Therefore, you do not submit to these rules and regulations because Christ is Lord over your life. That's why he says in verse 21, he says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used. He says, hey, the things that these teachers are telling you to do, they're man-made. They're not from God. When you eat that thing, it's gone. It cannot give you lasting salvation. It perishes. It's not lasting. But you know who will never perish, whose power will never perish? Jesus. Those are shadows. You can use it once and you can feel okay, but it's not lasting. What lasts is the power of Jesus. It's unending and it cannot be defeated. And the shadow points to the substance. 
He's lasting and eternal. The things that they are telling you, they are not. And so he closes in verse 23. He says, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom. I love the way he says that. I think a lot of times when we talk about legalism, we come with a judgmental, I'm ready to condemn you and put you in your place. But it's almost like he comes alongside them, puts his arm around him and says, look, I know they appear wise. They're plausible, man. I get it. Let me tell you the truth. He says, they have an appearance of wisdom. They make sense. This makes sense. What they're telling you is easily believable. But if you go down that path, if, if you choose to sever from the head of Christ, I know that sounds weird. If you choose to remove yourself from the head, you will find emptiness and you will find brokenness and your flesh will continue to lead your life because you can't do enough to make yourself holy. There's no experience that, will, that can replace the power and salvation that is found in Christ. So do not be fooled. Don't sever yourself from the head of the church. That's why he told them earlier, hey, be rooted in Christ. He's the one who nourishes you. So here's the main point that I want to leave us with. If we are connected, rooted, established in Christ, then he has moved us from do to done. That's the main point. If, he, if we are rooted in Christ, then he has moved us from do to done. Our lives are not driven by what we do. Our lives are driven by what he has done. So you want to be a better Christian? It begins when our hearts and our minds are centered on what he has done, not on what we can do and not on what experiences we can have. Don't live a life that says, I do in order to be okay. Here's the gospel. It's done. You're okay. Does that make sense? It's done that pain, that hurt, that disconnection you feel with God, with each other, with your own mind, that anxiety. Don't live a life that says, I do so that I can be okay. It's done. You're okay. He's got you. And he's proven that over and over and over. He declared, it's finished. It is done. And so we look to Christ, our glorious Savior, who redeems our brokenness and restores us to right relationship with him. And this is why we sing. We're not seeking approval from God. We're not seeking an experience. We sing to God as an expression of dependence. God, I need you. We sing to God as an expression of uh, a plea for help. God, this feels chaotic. I don't feel okay. Will you help me? We sing to God as an expression of sorrow. God, I am sorry that I've rejected you. I am so sad. Will you meet me here? We sing in gratitude because his grace is better than anything else. That's why we sing. We don't sing it because we need to do something. We don't sing it to get an experience. We experience him and his fullness, and he gives us what we need. Thank you for listening. Renewal Church is located in the center of Bell County, Texas. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about the mission of Renewal, go to renewalchurch.net.